The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. Good day, fellow travelers, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly Wheel of Time read-along podcast, jumping in. For more reading of The Great Hunt, book two in the fantastic series, uh, The Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan. I think I remembered all those things, right? Joining me to correct whatever I messed up is, of course, Tyler. Tyler, how are you? I am doing very well, mostly because you didn't mess up anything. And that is an impressive task when it comes to remembering things about the Wheel of Time. (laughs) There are a lot of things to remember. And I just wanted to kind of express to the podcast the same thing that I expressed to you when we were about to get started today. And I wasn't entirely sure if our timing was going to line up. Um, And that is... I am so excited to get to the good part of this book. One thing that I think uh, we will start to experience more and more about Robert Jordan is that he's a really gifted author who often needs a good like 60, 70 pages to really get going. (laughs) And so uh, this is going to be something that we see regularly, but we're about to get out of the doldrums. I promise it's not all Rand's POV for 200 pages like it was in the previous book. We'll get out of it soon. Uh, This week, however, we do not get out of Rand's head at all. Unless you have something else to talk about, I suggest we get first into some ill-advised discussion and then into chapter two. Any last thoughts before we get into the ill-advised discussion, Greg? No, let's go right to chapter three, to the image that leads uh, that chapter. Uh, I'm going to anticipate that you would say, Greg, uh, talk about your initial impressions of this image. So I will go ahead and say, uh, this is a pretty striking uh, chapter uh, heading. Um, What strikes me about it is that it is uh, longer than many. I don't think all, but it's it's much more of a horizontal rectangle. Um, And then it's perhaps most striking feature is how dark it is. We have a dark frame around a dark uh, dagger with only very thin little lines of white detail. And so we've talked before about how some of these are very balanced and others kind of shift one way or the other. And, you know, inside the black frame is white, but this feels like we are emphasizing the darkness here. Um, And I know from a text message from you earlier that my suspicion was correct, and we should read this as Matt's dagger, the ruby ruby hilted dagger uh, that was picked up in the Shadow City. So um, very cool. I don't know that I'd pictured it with snakes wrapped around the hilt. uh, Me either. I I guess that made up the hilt is how you would say it. Um, And the fact that the snakes are pointed towards the blade has it um 
it gives it the appearance of something almost closer to, is it a scythe? Uh, the martial arts weapon that Elektra uses in Marvel comics, which is those little pointy dagger things. I don't, I'm not positive the name. Sure. I'm, I'm willing to go with that. <laughs> but the style of the dagger is kind of a heavier curved blade, which I associate more with uh, Middle Eastern cultures um, and uh, kind of uh, sometimes pirates and things like that. Yeah, my immediate thought upon seeing this image for the first time when I was relatively young is like, oh, yeah, that's the same kind of thing that the guy who was fighting Indiana Jones and got shot was using. Mm, um, yeah, it, nice. I, I think the inspiration you're drawing is exactly right. That kind of like Middle Eastern kind of, you know, historically Arab societies had weapons that kind of look like this, which is very interesting given that mostly what we've been getting have been either traditional kind of Middle Eastern Western influences or very kind of eastern primarily chinese and japanese influences especially when it comes to weapons and armor so this i think is an interesting um you know kind of place in the you know kind of places that robert jordan is pulling from um my other thought was exactly the same one that you had this is just a dark image and um compared to the last image that we saw that was almost entirely black when we were looking at the wheel of time um this, I think it's kind of anticipated that this would be an especially dark image. What the dagger did to Matt is decidedly dark. I think that kind of fits the imagery that we're looking at here. Um, I will say when we're looking at what this image symbolizes, um, typically it is something that we see when either the dagger itself is in a chapter or when Matt is in a chapter and is some mm. way either influenced by the dagger or is kind of thinking about or interacting with the dagger. So um, for now, I would basically think of this as the dagger symbolizes the dagger um, in the same way that earlier we had said the heron marked blade symbol was kind of a stand in symbol for Rand until he gets an additional symbol. I would say kind of the same thing about this ruby hilted dagger for Matt um, in possibly a less dramatic way than the change for Rand. Um, this is kind of for now the symbol that will stand in for Matt as a character. But going forward, it kind of becomes a symbol for the dagger itself or its influence influence on Matt and mm. Matt gets kind of his own independent symbol. Um, there were a few things in there. Any of them that, you know, bring up anything or that you want to bounce off of? No, it's just that when I was definitely listening and not Googling, I discovered that the weapon Electra uh, wields is called a Psy, S-I-S-A-I. So I was close, but a, a little right. off. Uh, so it is a Psy. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because, I, I didn't know for sure that this would be the kind of fill in Matt symbol, like you just said, but um, it's funny because it, I assumed it would be, but this is not necessarily a Matt heavy chapter. I wouldn't yeah. put him at the center of the action here, even though he is uh, present. Um, and so I think I kind of also wondered that we have some other darkness in. No, it's actually not in this chapter. It's in the chapter after this. We have some other dark forces, uh, right? Oh, no, this is the second of the two chapters. Oh, right, right. Icons. So it's, yeah, it's so, friends and enemies. So it's the enemies portion of that. You're yeah, right. so Pod and Fane, I think, is also uh, where yeah. we're maybe thinking about kind of like we're talking about the influence of the dagger um, in mm. this section when we'll, we'll talk about this later. But when Egwene takes him down, everyone seems to be worse than before. It's possible this icon is keying us into at least part of what's causing that to happen. But we are now two chapters ahead, basically. I say, unless you have anything else to say, say about the ruby hilted dagger we dive back and do the chapter recap for chapter two the welcome so 
This chapter begins, the servants are rushing around. No one was expecting the Merlin seat to arrive, and so they're preparing for the arrival of what seems to be kind of an important dignitary, and Rand is basically panicking and trying to get out. He um, is constantly running into servants who seem excited for him and assume that he must be thrilled that the Merlin seat is going to come, and they all assume that the Merlin seat has come to talk to him and Perrin and Matt. Um, and so as this is happening, um, Rand finally makes his way to his quarters, and at his quarters he finds that there are a number of servants in there who are finding all of his clothing and getting rid of it. And Rand is obviously aghast at this and asks them to explain, and um, the leader of the servants, who I believe is called a Shambayan, something along those lines, um, she basically tells him, we were ordered by Lady Amalisa, who is Agilmar's wife, to get rid of all of your old clothing and replace it with his new clothing that was paid for by Lady Amalisa at the orders of Moraine, who said that all of your clothing was going bad and you need replacements. At this point, Rand tries to get rid of all of the servants and they kind of laugh at him, assuming that he wants them gone because he doesn't want to be naked in front of them. And it turns out in Faldara, uh, there really is no kind of taboo around nudity. And so uh, they actually find it very funny that the two rivers folk don't want to be naked in front of people of the other gender he eventually gets them out of the room at this point he realizes that all of the clothing that he has acquired is exceptionally fancy and some of it even has a stitching of the dragon on it um, eventually he changes into the least garish of the outfits he has he backpacks up the rest of all of the things that he has and then he makes his way out and decides to go the quick way rather than the slow way uh, which involves going through the courtyard where the Merlin seat is arriving. So he witnesses the welcome ceremony where all of the kind of nobles of Faldara are welcoming the Merlin seat. And it quickly becomes apparent during this ceremony that Faldara is kind of, at least in some way, subservient to the Merlin seat. They're kind of giving their honor to her more than the other way around. Um, when the Merlin seat comes out, she looks at the crowd and Rand feels as if her gaze rests on him for a few moments before moving on. Eventually, Rand makes his way out of the courtyard and into the stables. He tries to get his horse out, but is told by the groom that the groom just received orders. No one is allowed to take any horses out. No one is allowed out of the gates. Rand asks who gave the order, and the stable boy says, well, I don't know who gave it. I only heard it like third or fourth hand, but I assume it would have to be Agelmar. And at this, Rand runs away, realizing that his time is running out before the Merlin seat comes looking for him. That was a lot of description, which historically means not a lot of discussion. Um, but I think these kind of setup chapters are really necessary at the beginning of the book, even if Robert Jordan sometimes indulges them in page count a little more than I wish he would. Um, what was your impression of this second chapter of book two of the wheel of time yeah and, and much in line with what you were just saying at the end there um i thought a lot about the uh it, it was actually just one of my committee members when i was doing my dissertation and she had this biting way of just like crossing out four or five sentences and being like 
you don't need to clear your throat. Um, and I really feel like this uh, is just throat clearing. He's got a big yeah. new story to tell. And much like we talked about last episode, um, he needs to to establish these characters again, kind of imagining somebody just picking up book two and trying to, to make their way through it. Um, it's always interesting to me, either in book or movies, when they finally give up on that. And they're like, all right, yeah. if you're picking up book eight, it's on you or whatever. But um, I think book two, it's totally fair to say somebody might have wandered into this and, um, you know, might need a little uh, support in doing that. Um, to also piggyback on last week, I will say I found less here that really was compelling to me, whereas last week I felt like there were these good juicy bits that I really wanted to to uh, learn. It felt much more rehashy. And I, th I think that kind of uh, is both chapters the this week. But, um, you know, as we kind of go around and meet some of these uh, folks again and see some of this, this city again, it's like, okay, we're just establishing mostly what we know. Although I drew out a couple tidbits I, I didn't really know. Um, and maybe I'll throw it to you on this. I found myself uh, struggling to remember that it was the uh, Amerlin seat. I found myself wanting to say Amaryllis, like the flower or the little I, girl in Music Man. <laughs> I, I read this book series four times pronouncing it the Amaryllin seat before I saw the television <laughs> show and was like, oh, no, no, that's not even close. Um, well, and I'll just say also my mind kept going to uh, Haldo in Star Wars The Last Jedi is Amelin. So I kept saying the Amelin seat and I was like, oh, no, it's Amarillin, um, as as you just did I even goof it up. Amarillin, Amarillin. I, I goofed it up the way you said you goofed it up. So do you have any thoughts on where that comes from or do you know anything more about it? Is it a color? Is it a flower? Yeah. Um, so I think there are a couple of theories that I have and I don't know to what degree these are official and I've you know read them in a blog somewhere and internalized it versus how much they are kind of my assumptions or my thinking about this um one is that it's worth noting um that in the prologue of the first book there is a uh reference to the Tamerlan seat or the rod mm. of Tamerlan I think both are referenced at different points um and so it's possible that what is going on here is that this is kind of a further uh devolution if you will of some previous term and I'm not quite smart enough to go the two or three links you've probably got to go backwards to get whatever that reference is mm. but I'm sure there's a smart backwards induction reference that you can get there um the other kind of I think just slightly simpler explanation is I think this word just sounds far too much like the name Merlin to be uh in any way you know coincidental i think uh, my guess is that if we're going backward induction from tamerlin it's something of merlin that has mm. eventually kind of fallen to be you know it was the the throne of merlin that is now a merlin and that's what they call it because it's been ten thousand years since merlin was walking around and the spelling has altered and what have you that's my best kind of etymological guess, but that's mm. a little bit stabbing in the dark as much as it is kind of knowledge of, of where that term comes from. Um, well, and then, you know, I'm left mostly in this chapter with kind of two competing emotions. There's this kind of fish out of water feeling that yeah. we frequently felt in the first book um, when there's this kind of extended explanation of how uh, this 
culture doesn't uh, have any shame about nudity or what have you, yeah. um, or the mixing of genders uh, in in washrooms and bathtubs and and even washing each other. I was like, oh, we're going we're going places here. Uh, and then the other one is just again this tension of like I got to get out, I got to get out, and yeah. oh, but like let's check out what's happening here, which makes you. I, I mean, I think I don't blame Rand. It's it's human and understandable, but it's also like, come on, dummy, like get going if you're going to get going. Um, so it's kind of a funny mix of emotions that I think we're supposed to feel as we read through this. Yeah, I think what I found most interesting is that second emotion that you're describing, because mm. I found myself reading this chapter kind of the same way that I watched the first half of, you know, current reference, if you are watching live, Glass Onion, right? So mm. I'm watching this movie, and the early part of the film, I don't want to give any spoilers, but it's not entirely clear what the mystery is going to be in the early section of the film. And so I found myself spending a lot of time paying attention to, like, who is in the room with who and who is not in the room in certain scenes, because I assume Ryan Johnson is going to do his Knives Out thing at some point. Right. And that's kind of how I felt in this chapter is I am Rand going, he's trying to get away. And every time he has a conversation with someone, I'm cataloging it in my head. Now they know he was in this place at this time and can try to track him till wherever. And so that was the thing that I was doing a lot in this chapter is finding myself like, okay, so the Shambayan and three servants can put him in this place. And then the groom. Mm can put him in this place. And I was kind of trying to play that checkers of if I was the Merlin tracking him down, what clues are there? And Rand's doing a very bad job of covering his tracks. <laughs> is kind of what I've discovered throughout this chapter. But that was kind of the, the of those two emotions, the one that gripped me, at least on this reading of the chapter. Were you kind of doing the same thing? Were you more concerned about the the internal struggle of Rand rather than the external kind of trail he was leaving? Uh, yeah. And, and I'm still skeptical that he's actually in danger. Right. Like I I think he's in for an uncomfortable conversation. I don't think he's about to be gentled because um, yeah. it tends to be when Rand is afraid of something. That's not the thing he should actually be afraid of. So I think um, you're right that it is it's like you're spreading word all over the place in this community where some orders can be passed down in minutes um so clearly everybody's going to know that you're testing the the defenses and looking for for a way out um maybe the only other thing i'll i'll add to the mix is um you know uh part of my training was in in epic poetry and so i i studied the odyssey a lot and one kind of commonplace interpretation of the odyssey is it's a catalog of how uh, hospitality should and should not be done in ancient Greece. And that's a really important thing when you think about Homer the Bard traveling to island to island, explaining, oh, monsters do this, but nice people do this. Yeah. And so uh, when he's overlooking this um, scene of of the the arrival of the Aes Sedai and, and their uh, warders, um, and there's a lot of ritual, it's channeled that part of my mind it's a you know elevated language specific actions that make me understand okay there's there's an importance to hospitality and it's something i hadn't thought a lot about going backwards into this journey but there are quite a few examples of this even from like simple well think of the tinkerers right uh, the yeah. way they welcome them in um and what that tells you about them versus here 
you know, it's not about actually what matters. It's about the ritual and the politics and the significance. So um, I thought it was really interesting to watch that scene. Well, and I think that's especially interesting in light of the fact that immediately before that scene, uh, Rand is packing up his belongings and he runs mm. into Tom's pack of goods. So if we're thinking yeah. about like the kind of, you know, epic meeting that a bard might want to chronicle, uh, that I think that reference is kind of baked into what Robert Jordan Good is call. doing here. And I think that's that's really interesting. I hadn't noticed that connection. Um, I think that kind of covers all of the major things I had in this chapter. I had just a couple of like really little details that might be worth pulling out just for quick reactions or quick thoughts. I'm going to do a... Oh, Let me see if I can guess them. I'm ready. Please do. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, we'll see how, how close we're getting in podcasting. Uh, big kind of flashing sign for me on the fact that Rand is uh, treated as a king by somebody because Al, the the Al prefix, is in his name, yep. and he says that's just part of my name. I'm not really a king, and it's like, okay, buddy, I know how this works. <laughs> like you have to be descended from a king or part of some kind of royal lineage, as we've already seen as a part of that. Was that one of yours? It it was something that I wanted to mention. I think very interestingly, however, the name Althor doesn't come from his lineage. It comes okay. from his father, right? That right. That is the name right. of the two rivers descendants. So I think you're absolutely right. That was something I wanted to key in on. There's some fun, fun linguistics and probably, as you're saying, foreshadowing, but I can't say more than that. Um, <laughs> But I think anything beyond that, it's actually interesting to know if it does go that way, it's an ironic version of it. It's not mm. that he's gotten this name from his royal family and this is a clue to it. It's it's actually something that would not be uh, descended from the people who he actually would get the royal lineage from. Right. And it could be from the the people that existed in Two Rivers that the others are descended from. Uh, presumably yeah 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 um but you're right that he yes and i actually did interpret that correct i just didn't express it right that yes it's Perfect. not yeah. his blood lineage his mysterious parenthood uh still notwithstanding but the uh the group there um and then i would say my second guess and then i'll let you just run through whatever else you have is the fact that everybody over and over again just says of course the order came from lord anglemar yeah. and it seems pretty clear oh it's probably moraine or somebody else who's pulling the strings here just because we get this repetition of oh who else could have done this um and i yeah. think that means it wasn't yeah, no, that's absolutely something that I wanted to point out. And I think it's it's always interesting. Rand is asking really smart questions in this chapter around mm. this. And that's the other thing I wanted to note here. One, I think you're exactly right when everyone is saying, oh, I heard it forthhand. I assume it's Aglemar. That's just a blinking red light that it definitely wasn't Aglemar, right? Obviously. Yeah. Um, but I think the other thing here is Rand keeps considering who is in charge and he is trying to figure out under whose authority and what authority can he potentially subvert this actually ties back into something that i was observing way back in like chapters three and four of the eye of the world rand has a weirdly kind of good mind for politics and noticing who's in charge and who's pulling strings in a way that I think um, is is serving him well in this scene. In the next chapter, he almost manages to get out talking to someone else because he kind of pulls the strings in the right way. Um, 
just noticing that Rand is asking those questions, I think is is a sign of some growth and also him taking things that he had before and applying them in new, better ways. Um, you said, I can just go at this point. I have two other small things. Mm. Um, both of these are pseudo retcons by Robert Jordan that I just want to draw our attention to. Um, the first is that Moraine repeatedly throughout the eye of the world is referred to as being young looking. Now, in the scene in which um, all of the Aes Sedai are gathered, Rand puts new language to that. He refers to the Aes Sedai as looking ageless. He says, hmm. from a distance, they look young. But if you look at them closely, their faces look mature but smooth in a way that is both kind of young and old at the same time. So while this is kind of a modification of the way that Rand was describing Moraine earlier, um, when Robert Jordan starts saying all Aes Sedai have a characteristic in common, that's going to be something that's going to be useful for us to keep an eye on if we ever see a character that we're not sure if they're Aes Sedai or not, having them be described as like young looking or we couldn't put an age to them seems to now be an Aes Sedai descriptor. Um, the other kind of minor retcon that I notice in this chapter is that we now get a little bit more detail on what the bows in the two rivers are like, and it is mm. actually mildly in contradiction with the previous book, right? Huh. Because previously we had kind of had associated Heron was with the axe, Rand was with the sword, and Matt was with the bow. And in the previous book, Matt had shown off his skill with the bow several times, and every time he did so it was while shooting the bow off of horseback um, we now in this chapter learn that the two rivers are renowned for their long bows which are so large that these shinarans say they can't be fired from horseback so hmm. i think we're kind of redefining what the two rivers are known for robert jordan is starting to refine and kind of find the identity that previously was kind of a little bit gray or sketchy around the edges but in doing so there are kind of a few places where we get a little kind of tension this is the kind of thing that i was talking about at the beginning of the last episode where sometimes these books either contradict what came before or are slightly contradicted by what came after as robert jordan i think kind of finds the details of the world that he had sketched earlier so did either of those kind of refinements um either bring anything to mind or do either of those kind of um you know pique your curiosity about anything no i will say i did not bump on the bow as a retcon but the way they talked about the bow seemed to me like a reminder that um rand is bigger than average yeah. and is kind of a giant um and so the bow felt like a symbol of that like he's you know he's using a larger weapon um both a longbow but it seemed to be like emphasis on how large it was even for a it, longbow it, in in a probably paragraph or chapter or two we will come to refer to these repeatedly as two rivers longbows so oh, okay. you can think of that as like a distinct type of weapon if you will um that's everything that i had for chapter two you're probably hearing my dog barking i apologize uh anything uh in chapter two that you wanted to cover uh before we transition to the summary of chapter three the only tiny thing in my notes that we didn't talk about was was the Aes Sedai arriving um, and just the fact that there were 14. Um, and I was wondering yes. if there was uh, 
you know, particular significance to the number who might be on the court. Um, you know, we have had some numbers uh, have importance throughout the book, um, but nothing too strong yet. So it was just striking to me that there was emphasis on 14 just because it's such a peculiar number. It's one of those numbers that's kind of too big to picture. It's hard yeah. to picture 14 people standing in a row or in a circle. So uh, that was curious to me, but that's literally all I had in my notes. So unless you have any numerology to get into, you can proceed. I, I don't know if I have numerology, but I, I've got factoring. And it's worth noting 14 factored as 7 and 2, and 7 is one of those significant numbers that we've had. Mm. In particular, 7 was a significant number for the Aes Sedai. We learned that there are 7 Ajas. So mm. um, it's distinctly possible that that number 14 may be something like two representatives from each Aja or something similar to that. Uh, my math brain always just loves primes. So it's so that also goes to 13 plus one, but uh, hmm. seven twice seems more likely given the, the numerology we've seen a few times, including the seven uh, spokes on the Wheel of Time in the that's symbol right. we talked about a couple of episodes ago. Um, if that's what we've got, then I say we jump into chapter three, Friends and Enemies. So this chapter begin with Ran running to a gate where he is hoping that he can talk the guards there into letting him out so he can escape the city. Um, he runs into two guards who interestingly are both names that we have seen before. So we should do a quick review of them later. This is Ragan and Mazima. Um, Ragan seems willing to let Rand go, but when he checks in with Mazima, he immediately shuts it down and tells him, no, we've gotten orders. Uh, Rand again asks who the orders are coming from, and Mazima admits that he didn't get the orders directly, but only Agomar would have the authority to give the kind of order that would close all of the gates. Um, Rand then runs around and tries to find first a place to escape and realizes that even the smallest of the gates are closed. And then he starts looking for a place to hide, trying to find somewhere in the storage areas. Um, soon he runs into Egwene. And Egwene at first kind of tries to convince him that nothing is wrong, nothing bad is going to happen, but eventually is convinced that she might as well help him if he is just going to be running around. And so initially, she believes that she has a good idea for where to hide him. She is going to take him into the dungeons where she has been visiting Padden Fane. And Rand asks whether or not it's safe and whether Moraine has said it's okay. And Egwene admits she hasn't been asking Moraine. She's just been going. Um, they make their way down to the dungeons. And first, it's notable that the guards seem extremely dour and almost mean to Rand. And Egwene says that it seems like they've been getting worse day after day. There are also a couple of individuals in there who are arrested for very minor crimes, but Egwene says they also seem to be getting worse and worse over time. Um, finally, they get in and see Padden Fane, who earlier Egwene had said had been doing much better and almost seemed like his old self. That is definitely not the case on this day. He is spouting um, crazy, dark, you know, prophecies or whatever it is he is doing at one part point he starts chanting and actually does one of the few rhyming couplets that i actually like from robert jordan and then uh Egwene is just like no we can't possibly keep you here this is awful we need to get out and then they realize there is only one place that they can get rand where no one will be looking for a man and that is the women's quarters and so they begin to kind of tr try to disguise rand and get him to the women's quarters where 
no one will find him. And as they begin to depart, Padden Fane gives some more, you know, really dark commentary. And the chapter ends with us trying to pull a Mrs. Doubtfire hoodwink on the Aes Sedai. <laughs> um, so, Greg... I'm curious in this chapter, it's called Friends and Enemies, and yet we spend very little time with the friends component of this chapter. Um, and so I'm curious about the first half, how it landed for you. It almost feels like an extension of the previous chapter with just a little bit of new content to me. Did it land? Did it kind of start to wear thin? What was your reaction to the first half of this? Do you know, do you remember Loyal? Here's who Loyal is. Do you remember Matt? Here's who Matt is. Do you remember yep. Perrin? Here's what per who Perrin is. And, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm certainly not annoyed or frustrated by this. It's just necessary, um, you yeah. know, and so um, I think it, it was really important in that regard. So um, within that, I will say kind of what then my mind was picking apart is as much like you were just talking about glass onion. It's like, okay, so what are the details here that are going to be significant and different? And um, I, I bumped on here some more Tom references. You had already mentioned last yeah. chapter. There's lots of reminders in case you weren't sure Tom's coming back. Like here's even more kind of make sure the, the people picking up just this book uh, know about Tom. Um, and then the emphasis in particular on the wind as a continued source yeah. of anxiety and, and kind of dialing up the tension here just a little bit um, where we're going to talk a little bit more about, you know, um, you're not just afraid and insecure because you're worried about the, the, the Amerlin seat. It's also this kind of exterior threat. And I thought there was particular emphasis on watching and decay. And I will say decay, I don't link to Beelzemon. I was thinking much more of the people from the Shadow City who we defeated, right? And that got me thinking, we were noting how fast they were seemingly dispatched. And yet um, here's a, a force from the North that seems to be causing problems. So that's where my mind went. That's my careless speculation. Yeah, and I think that I would link that back to uh, the very beginning of chapter one of this book, because kind of that initial image of decay that we get is from the very beginning with the wind, right? Because every book has a wind that blows from somewhere. This wind blew from Mount Doom through the blight, and so it carried this very like acrid kind of unsettling smell and so i think that that is kind of the the mood and the vibe we're supposed to be carrying through in these early chapters and you're exactly right the anxiety around the wind i think comes through really effectively and then as i'm sure we'll talk about towards the end of this chapter i think Padden fane feels like the the kind of catalyst or at least the you know, kind of the center of this corruption at the end of this chapter. And I think that's really effectively drawn to carry that kind of like unsettlingness of the wind to then Pad and Fane being the center of unsettlingness. Um, and so it's interesting that we get that kind of image and that vibe throughout a chapter where the first half of it, as you mentioned, is kind of designed to reintroduce us to all of the good characters. Um, and this begins at the beginning of the chapter with two characters that we've briefly gotten to know earlier. Um, so this is Ragan and Mazima. Um, now, Mazima, you could be completely forgiven for not remembering at all. Um, he was a random guard who we ran into in the previous book. He gave them a little bit of info about what was going on 
at Tarwin's Gap. Um, but mostly uh, Mazima is notable for being kind of in both cases we've seen him so far, very by the book, by the rules, follow, you know, whatever protocol is. Um, Ragan, on the other hand, we had met in a previous in the previous book when they initially arrived in Faldara. Ragan was actually someone who came up to land very excitedly asking if he had raised the golden crane. And he was the only person who didn't refer to land formally as Daishan. So Ragan clearly has some sort of kind of past history with land and seems to at least being carried forward into this book. Um, I'm not hmm. sure whether I either of those names kind of popped for you, but I was curious about just that scene at the at the gates, whether uh, you found either of those characters in that interaction to be kind of compelling or interesting. We see kind of two very different guards with different kind of ways of going about things. But then you see, like you said earlier, that kind of Faldar in order. Once someone gives an order, it's an order. Uh, did that scene work for you or, or what did you pull out of it? Um. I, again, I didn't bump on either of those those names certainly, um, and that's helpful that you've you filled us in on that. And I I will just say it felt like the main intention of that scene was to be like, here's some hope. Nope. Uh, so I think that again just escalates this tension. And you know, as as Rand gets more desperate, I think it's only natural we start to feel that trapped emotion, right? Like all the doors are shut in most cases, literally, and the options get desperate. I, I'm going to miss the placement of it, but he, soon after that is like, maybe I can just go over the wall. And yeah. but then there's a mode and, and there's there's a lot of those things. So, um, yeah, I, I think it makes me feel like we need it we need to understand that there was really no other option for him um, yeah. if we're going to understand what follows from this. And, and that seems to be Robert Jordan's primary goal in scenes like this one. Yeah, and I think that this actually carries on something from the previous chapter that we hadn't mentioned much, which was when uh, Rand was going through Tom's things, he also briefly kind of has a recollection of Tom telling him how terrible it was when his nephew was gentle. And I think mm -hmm. that that emotion is kind of carrying through here, kind of as he's running out of options, we can kind of feel Rand getting more and more panicked as each of those doors closes. And I think that's kind of the beginning of that match and now we're getting to, okay, this thing's definitely going to explode. Um, in the following scene, like you said, it kind of feels like here's Loyal, here's Matt, here's Perrin. But the end of the scene, I think, is the only thing that's somewhat new, which is Rand kind of pushing those characters away, right? Initially, mm. he comes to them asking for help, saying, um, you know, Loyal, do you know a secret way out? Matt or Perrin, do you know anything that could help me? Um, and their reaction is like, we want to come with you. And Rand kind of panics and pushes them all away. He kind of drives the wedge of his new clothes he tries to you know make himself seem like he is you know special and all everyone's treating him like a lord and he kind of uses that to get them to not want to come with him um this i feel like to some degree every time i read it it a feels like it comes out a little bit of nowhere even though i think it's well motivated by robert jordan it's just not a move i would ever consider so it never feels like something completely well justified um, and the other thing for me is this kind of feels like a, a trope of teenage fantasy right um, mm. and I don't mean fantasy necessarily in the like high fantasy sense I just mean any teenage fictional story where the hero is going to win in the end I feel like there needs to be a moment where they isolate themselves from their friends and this is so often the device push them away in order to protect them 
Yes. Uh, Harry Potter uh, obviously comes to mind. There, there's a lot of those types of moments and you kind of shuffle kids around each other. But um, yeah. And, and and while that is a staple of the genre, it's also just like, yeah, but that's what teenagers do. Right. Yep. They they don't like welcome everybody in their circle to talk through their problems. They they push people away to to rid themselves of them. Um yeah, and and you know, I think I enjoyed. Uh, Loyal gave a, a shout out to Steading Shanghai, something like that. Yeah. Um, and I was like, I just found that on the map. I pointed that out last <laughs> episode, so I was proud of that one, even though it's not really that important. Yeah. Um, and so the only other thing that bumped on me again, other than kind of those social dynamics you said, is there's kind of a funny mention that Matt is very, very lucky um, yeah. and that he he just has to touch the dice. And my mind immediately connected that with the dagger, right? Um, yep. Is this some kind of dark temptation? I, I don't think Robert George is doing some kind of moralism tale about how uh, gambling leads you to, to evil. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, well, you know, is that going to make that is a seduction technique, right? Like, oh, I'm going to make it all so easy that you can win and you can bet and so on. So I wondered if we're seeing the dagger's powers manifest in a slightly different way um, or not. That's interesting. I actually, when I read this for the first time, had a different theory. I assumed hmm. that this was a different manifestation of the Taviran power set. I was oh. thinking if they kind of warp the pattern around them, why not the pattern of randomness or chance? So hmm. I think it might be worth keeping an eye on whether or not Matt's luck seems to kind of tip in the positive or negative direction to see which of those two initial impulses might be uh, more likely. Um, the other it thing. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and and you're reminding me, too, that Loyal is very clear to remind us that all three are Tavir and not yeah. just Rand, um, which, you know, I think in, in the first book we were like, oh, is it narrowing it down? Like, which one is it? Which one is it? And it's like, no, here's a reminder. It's all of them are a part of this. Yeah, and I think in that discussion, Loyal actually says something really interesting because we have kind of prior been thinking of Taviran as the people who can break free of the pattern and kind of choose their own destiny. But Loyal in this conversation says sometimes Taviran can shape the world around them, but sometimes Taviran are tied in by the pattern tighter than anyone else. And mm -hmm. so that's kind of an interesting thing that we're starting to think about with these characters is how much are they choosing their destinies and how much is like chance shaping around them to force them into some specific destiny. Um, unless you have anything else in that conversation, and I think you just said that was your last thing, um, yeah. we're then to Egwene in the trip to the dungeons. So was there anything in this section that really kind of keyed in on for you or that you thought was especially interesting or you think kind of might be a, a clue to where the story is going um my main reaction to this section was just um it's a register uh we've played in before but it's very much Egwene is confident kind of self-assured and kind of together where the boys are hot mess um and that is more rand to Egwene, but you know, I'm anticipating a splitting of these two characters based on the the kind of prophecies and such that that we've read through. Um, and so I thought it was interesting that while there are different ways the two relate to each other, this is the one Robert Jordan really wanted to emphasize here that um, Egwene is just confident and she'll just do what she wants. And it doesn't, you know, it's not uncaring, but is going to just kind of uh, be more rational than than um, Rand in particular is acting in this moment. 
Yeah, and I think the thing that I really love about Egwene's characterization in this scene is we get, I think, like two or three moments all in a row where Egwene proves very clearly that she is chaotic good, right? Mm. She is going to see Padden Fane without Moraine's permission. She hears that Rand needs to leave and immediately is like, okay, I'll hide you, right? It doesn't matter that it's against the rules. It doesn't matter that she wants to become an Aes Sedai and the head of the Aes Sedai wants to meet with Rand. She'll break the rules to do the right thing for her friend. And I think that... um, well, I think you're exactly right. This is very much, uh, if you're contrasting Rand against Egwene, it's kind of a capable versus blundering dynamic. When you just think about Egwene as a character in this sequence, I think we're getting to see a little bit more of who she is in contrast to authority. Whereas in the previous book, she kind of was swept up by Moraine and was kind of following along with her the whole time. We're now starting to see that that's not necessarily Egwene's default mode, right? She's just as much of a rule breaker as she is a follower along. It kind of, it depends on the situation and whether Mm. she believes authority is doing what's right. And I think that's a slightly different look than we've seen for Egwene so far. Yeah, and you know, it. All things considered, it's not a bad plan she has, and and like, no, nor is it bad logic that she's like, I've seen this guy forever. If he's if he's the dark friend they say he is, then he always has been. So I'm still gonna go talk to him, and um, you know, what that bodes for the future, because so often it sounds like she is just gonna go be a pupil, um, but maybe she's not going to, you know, I, I, could she be the Qui Gon Jinn of the Aes Sedai Order, who's just gonna kind of buck against the authority? Um, it seems natural that she could do that, and usually that's the type of figure who becomes a reformer in some kind of some kind in a story like this. Yeah, and I think that Egwene at this point is kind of starting to key in on a lot of kind of differing paths potentially I see with her, Mm. right? Because we're seeing her in some senses as being someone who really is kind of wanting to grow and really is seeing the Aes Sedai as something that she can kind of become a part of. And it's almost, you know, becoming her identity. I think in the previous chapter, Lan describes it as like, she would give up almost anything to be that she's decided it's what she wants and she gets what she wants. But at the same time, we see her very willing to take risks that put that future at risk. If she thinks it's the wrong thing, right? Defying the Merlin sea is possibly the worst thing you can do with that future in mind. And and I think that's it's just a really interesting start for a character when, as you say, there are so many possible kind of long term places for that kind of you know character directionally to go. Um, this leaves us at the end of the chapter then with Padden Fane and the dungeons. Um, it's creepy. I think it does a good job of establishing the vibe. That's kind of all I've got for this section. There's nothing in it that makes me go like, oh, we need to dissect this. What were your impressions of this kind of final section of the chapter? Um, very much silence uh, of the lambs vibes uh, that it felt like, oh, let's go visit our dark friend. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I bumped on the name more death that that there's such yeah. emphasis on that. Um, but that that is really it for me as well. I mean, it was good. And I don't think you're dismissing it at all either. It's yeah. it's a good reminder of the tension. And again, introducing um, this figure that. You know, I think you could easily have forgotten in the kind of run up to the end that that we did get this revelation that 
uh, Pat and Fane was behind them the whole time. And so um, clearly a signal that this is going to continue to be significant um, and that the dagger is going to be significant. Yeah. This to me, I don't know why this always feels like the kind of scene that if you put it in a movie, you would end up cutting Egwene saying like, we need to not be here because he's creepy because you needed to cut like eight seconds from the movie. And then everyone would say it was a giant plot hole because they went to the dungeons and immediately left. (laughs) Uh, That's that's my one complaint about this sequence is I think it, it works really well for establishing uh, a couple of characters and a couple of kind of, you know, tensions that we're, you know, expecting to blow up at some point going forward. But it does so in a scene that in no way advances the plot. And if anything, it's like the ultimate West Wing walk and talk, right? They just like walk <laughs> to the dungeons and then immediately turn around and walk out. But we got the background we needed in the sequence. So that's why they did it. Uh, that, nice. That's my big complaint with this scene, even though, as you say, I, I think it's fairly well done. Um that's what I've got for this chapter. There's there's not a, a ton of extra meat on these bones as far as I'm concerned. Any yeah. last thoughts for you in Friends and Enemies? No, I, I think, again, um, like you said, it is shocking how we're now like 60 pages in and it's like, all right, we're ready for the story to begin. Um, you know, I do love that this series and other fantasy books just take their time to do it. I'm not somebody who loves a 200 page novel. I, I, you know, I grew up reading, well, not grew up, but I, I love Dickens. I love uh, Moby Dick. I love the big fat book that you can brag to people you read. Um, so I think this is just a luxurious way to kind of uh, wind everything up uh, and, and get it spinning. Um, I am, strongly anticipating that what we will see maybe not next episode but soon after will be a confrontation with the Amerlin seat um which won't go how he expects but i think it will cause the the breaking of the fellowship at last and people will start to head off in their different directions so there's there's a uh, a wild prediction to to wrap us up uh and i'll throw it back to you to close the show Absolutely. And I think that that is both a wild prediction and kind of an obvious one, right? Like, <laughs> Fair the, enough. <laughs> the, the, the fellowship won't stay together for the entire next 13 books. You're probably <laughs> right. Um, I think that the really unexpected thing that is coming next week, I briefly hinted at earlier, but it is something that always gets me very excited when it happens. We are about to get, I believe, at least like a chapter, maybe even a chapter and a half of the rarest piece. POV of the main mm. character POVs in Wheel of Time. So get ready because next week when we go through the glass columns, we get a new view through the glass columns. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass, and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey.
If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend the show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time through the glass columns.